Mahre Mezenzov has been married for more than five years, but she hasn't seen her husband for most of that time. They're both Uyghurs, part of an ethnic minority in China that have been victims of horrific crimes, according to the United Nations. Mahre is an Australian citizen, and her husband is a Chinese national with permanent residency in Australia. And yet... It was on the 26th of September, 2020, that my husband was detained again for what we didn't know at the time would be the last time. Mahre's husband is one of an estimated million people who have been detained, they say, just for being Uyghur. Several countries accuse China of carrying out a genocide. And on December 9th, a People's Tribunal in the UK found that to be true. The Uyghur Tribunal has concluded that the government of the People's Republic of China is guilty of committing crimes against humanity and genocide against the Uyghur people. This is a rare moment of accountability for the families of victims and the survivors of the PRC's regime's cruelty. But how, or better yet, will that accountability save Uyghur lives in China? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today we're updating an episode we first brought you in June about a family that's been separated and largely left in the dark and an international effort to bring justice to the thousands of others like them. The Uyghur community in China is 12 million strong. Most of them live in the northwestern state of Xinjiang. But the UN says one million of them are in what China calls re-education camps. There's growing evidence of human rights violations inside these camps, including torture. International researchers say Uyghur detention has evolved into Uyghur forced labor. Women in China's so-called re-education camps have been systematically raped and tortured. China denies these accusations. Here's an official at the Chinese embassy in London. There is no so-called genocide or forced labor or mass sterilization or other things. We call it the lies of the century. The accusation against us in Xinjiang is totally groundless and not based on facts. Heavy surveillance in the state Xinjiang makes it hard to ever know what's actually happening with the Uyghurs who live there. It's difficult to get information in or out, and that's especially tough on people who have loved ones there, like Mehre. I am 27 years old. My husband's name is Mirza Tayir, and he is 30 years old. I'm an Uyghur who was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. So we are here to talk about a love story of sorts. So let's go back to where the story first began. 2016, when you met your husband. Can you tell me how that happened? So my husband and I met online. Our mums actually introduced us. And then um, pretty much from the moment that I first spoke with him, we just had this connection. And then one month in, my husband asked me to marry him. Wow. So it was all like really, really quick. Um, But I guess like once you know, you just know. And I was just so sure. I knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with him. So when he asked me to marry him, I said yes. I I went to 
Urumqi, which is the capital city of Xinjiang, which is his hometown. And that's where we first met in person. Mahre says it was love at first sight when she stepped out of the airport and saw Mirzat waiting for her. Their wedding was just days later. My husband is the eldest son, so there was like this big kind of expectation that he would have to have this really big wedding. So um, I think we had like almost 500 guests or something like that. Um, (laughs) That is quite big. um, Yeah, it felt like I was like a guest at my (laughs) own wedding. (laughs) Pretty much everyone there was all like my husband's friends and family. First, we had the religious ceremony. About a week later, then we had the actual wedding in like this big restaurant. And there was lots of cultural dancing, Uyghur music. It was just, I guess, a chance for like everyone to come and to meet me. And it was really lovely. Mahre and her husband Mirzat got married in August 2016. And by September, they'd applied for his Australian visa. They'd planned to move to Melbourne together and start their life there. But in early 2017, less than a year after their wedding, that plan was derailed. On April 1st, 2017, that was when we received the good news that his Australian visa was granted. And it was right around this time that then we started to hear rumours going around the neighbourhood that people were disappearing in the middle of the night and they were being taken somewhere and that their families were losing contact with them and no one really knew what was happening and why they were being targeted. But what we heard was that mostly at first they were targeting younger men around my husband's age. At this point, Mirzat was 26 years old. And obviously we were worried, but then at the same time, we didn't understand just the extent of how bad it really was. But in saying that, we did book our tickets as soon as possible. So we booked our tickets for the 12th of April. And it was on the night of the 10th of April that police officials came and took my husband. Can you describe what you remember about the moment the police showed up? I was terrified. I was literally shaking. But then at the same time, the police were just like, we just have a few questions to ask and then we'll get out of your hair. So we were just being like, okay, maybe it is just that. But as soon as they came in, the first thing they asked was, had my husband traveled overseas? And prior to us getting married, my husband studied and worked in Turkey for about a year. So he said, yes, I've been to Turkey. And they were just like, give us your passport. They confiscated it there on the spot. And then they were just like, you have to come back to the station with us. And then my heart sank. That's when I knew that, okay, They completely just lied to us. This isn't just going to be like a couple of questions and they're not just going to let him go. At that point, my husband, he realized as well. He was like, please, whatever you have to ask, could you just ask it now and I will answer all your questions. I beg you, please just ask me now. And at that point, like we were all crying and and, and shaking and we were just um, begging them to just ask the questions here and then let him go. But they just wouldn't allow it. The police took Mirzat to the station, and Mahre and the family followed in their own car. But they couldn't do anything. He was questioned there for three days, and then transferred to a detention center. They told us clearly that it was because he had 
been to Turkey. That's why he was detained. But they never actually said like he's been arrested or anything like that. They just said, oh, it's just a few day questioning sort of thing. And then we're going to let him go. So I'm wondering what that must be like as someone who is in a somewhat foreign city. You're with your new family, but not people that you've known for a very long time. And you are having to make sense of something that doesn't really make sense in a language that's not your own. What were you feeling? I just remember just feeling so scared when they'd be talking. I'd just be trying to understand from their body language, were they speaking in a nice manner or were they shouting at us? And I just remember feeling so helpless that really I I couldn't do anything or I couldn't interfere on behalf of my husband. That whole experience was just literally one of the worst experiences in my life, and especially not being able to understand like why this was happening. My husband was a law-abiding citizen. He hadn't committed any kind of crimes. He had no criminal record. So then for these um, two policemen to come into our home and then just arrest him was just so bizarre and it was just really scary. Mirzat was in and out of detention often after that point. Cumulatively, he spent three out of the past four years away from his family. And even when he was out in brief stints, he never got his passport back and was unable to leave China. I asked Mahre what Mirzat has told her about his time in detention. To be honest, he didn't really tell me so much about what he went through just because he was still having to like go through the whole trauma of it and like accept what had happened. Fortunately, my husband, the place where he was being held, he said that he wasn't involved in any kind of forced labor or anything like that. He said mainly they were constantly taught about the Communist Party. They were forced to memorize propaganda like speeches. You'd have to say, oh, like, I'm so grateful for what the Communist Party um, has done for our country. And every day he said that we were forced to confess our crimes and ask for pardoning. So because he had traveled overseas, he would have to say stuff like, I apologize for going overseas. I should have never done that. I should have realized that China was a great country and I should have um, studied and worked here. And I realize my mistake now and I will not commit that same kind of crime again. That one is particularly jarring, knowing that his wife lives outside of China. Yeah. And he would like to be reunited with his wife and you would like to be reunited with him. Yeah. There have been lots of reports similar to this coming out of the Uyghur camps. Reports from people who've been in them suggest a program of brainwashing, study of China's anti-extremism legislation and abuse and violence. Mahre says Mirzat and the other detainees in his cell were also put through what she calls psychological torture. Pretty much every day, they were reminded that they were never going to leave the four walls and that they were never going to be reunited with their families. And any time any of the detainees didn't listen to what they were being told, he said that they were denied food and water for that day. So if one of them misbehaved, then all of them had to suffer the consequences. In terms of physical torture, because that was something that I was really worried about, 
He did mention this one time when he accidentally spoke Uyghur to one of the policemen. So obviously when you're in there, you're not allowed to speak the native tongue. So everyone is expected to speak Mandarin, whether you know it or not. So my husband said he accidentally replied back in our native tongue to one of the guards. And he said that day that he was handcuffed and he was strung up on the door and he was left there Oh wow! for pretty much the whole day. He was denied food, water, anything like that. So like hearing that I was heartbroken. I was, I was so scared. And I was like, if they've, if they've done this to him, maybe they've done other stuff that he's not telling me. And he's probably not telling me because he's like, we've already had to suffer through this for the last two years. I don't want to put you through any more suffering. I'm out now. I just want to focus on moving forward. I want to focus on our future. So then, yeah, I always had it in the back of my mind that he probably went through other things that were similar to that. And he's just not telling me. After the most recent arrest, in September 2020, Mirzat was taken to a jail further from home. Then, Mahre started to hear that he was being charged with separatism. In their mind, they concocted this kind of story that my husband's whole reason for travelling to Turkey was that he was like involved in these political activities to try and bring down the Chinese government and to try and establish an independent country separate from China. What is your husband's response to that? He was like, I don't know how they were able to make this story up because obviously I haven't done anything like that. There is a large Uyghur community in Turkey and most of them are refugees. My husband was always careful to not get too involved in the community over there because he knew that there were some people who had been blacklisted by China. And like I said, he was never involved in any kind of political activities. So like when he heard this, he was like, this obviously isn't a joke to them. They're so sure that I've done this thing, even though at this point there was absolutely um, no kind of evidence at all. Then, on April 1st, 2021, Mehre says the Chinese Communist Party convicted her husband, Mirza Tahir, of separatism and sentenced him to 25 years in prison. They did hold a trial, obviously. It was a sham trial. And after the trial, I actually reached out to the high courts and they denied that any such trial took place and they denied that a person such as my husband even existed. And that was just bizarre. And I called a couple of places and then as soon as they heard the questions that I was asking, most of them just hung up and then they blocked my number for me to be able to call them again. What avenues are you pursuing to try to get him released? Even though my husband, his visa was cancelled and everything, when I came back to Melbourne last year, I was able to revoke the cancellation of his visa. I was even able to get him his permanent residency. So as of July 2020, my husband is an Australian permanent resident. So I'm really trying my best to appeal to the government here. I'm also working with Amnesty International Australia. I've also got contacts in Human Rights Watch that are also helping me with my husband's case. Obviously, I know that this is not going to be like a quick fix or anything like that, but at this point, I'm just open to trying anything and everything that I can possibly do to make even the slightest difference to my husband's case. Our countries, they need to take 
action they need to do something about it and they can't keep letting this happen. The People's Tribunal that concluded on December 9th in the United Kingdom is supposed to be a step in that direction. To learn more, we talked with Sir Geoffrey Nice, the chairman of the tribunal. It is usually the case that the People's Tribunals come into being because there are no formal channels to deal with the issue. Sir Geoffrey says that's exactly the case with the Uyghur Tribunal he chairs. The only places that might deal with this are the International Court of Justice, which is the world's highest court, or to the International Criminal Court. So far as the International Court of Justice is concerned, It's technically possible to get China before that court for some things, but not for genocide, because under the Genocide Convention, it has what's called a reservation. The reservation says China will not be subject to the jurisdiction of of the court. End of story. The International Criminal Court is a court basically for determining issues in the states of ratifying parties. China has not ratified the court. So there is no court to which China can be taken. That's the reason that something like this tribunal serves a purpose. On December 9th, Sir Geoffrey delivered the tribunal's verdict, and it was damning. What the tribunal has done is to assess evidence to decide whether the PRC, a great, powerful and successful nation, has been and is attacking with intent of destroying a part or parts of its own population. And the evidence shows it has sometimes done so in full view on the streets, sometimes behind closed doors, sometimes in hospitals, sometimes in purpose-built detention centres and sometimes in people's own homes. The tribunal heard from dozens of witnesses, including Mahre, over the course of two hearings this year. There were men who had been held in camps, women forced to have abortions, and in the resulting judgment, the tribunal found China guilty of carrying out a widespread and systematic attack against a civilian Uyghur population. The focus of events on destroying culture, on imprisoning Uyghurs, on stopping children learning their language, and so on and so forth, made it pretty unavoidable that we found there was an attack. The judgment clarified that although China was not accused of conducting mass killings of Uyghurs, it was still guilty of genocide through forced sterilizations. In 2019, the authorities formulated a plan to conduct widespread sterilization in two counties intended to sterilize, in one case, 14.1%, in another, 34.3% of all women of childbearing age. And of course, the tribunal had heard multiple witnesses who had themselves been forced into abortion. In the case of one witness who was working in a hospital, she witnessed the forced abortion of near-term babies. In a 2021 report to the tribunal from the Uyghur Transitional Justice Data Team, was an obstetrician and witnessed the killing of babies immediately after being born. And so these policies, in all, led to a reduction in birth rates and a decline in population growth. The tribunal found that 
not only did Chinese authorities commit grave crimes, but that the blame goes all the way up to the top, to President Xi Jinping. Top-down control was really traced to the president, Xi Jinping, and it was traced there in various ways. There was a cache of documents, speeches, written communications, directions that was provided electronically direct to the tribunal during the September hearings. And they really showed how it was his thinking that matched and led others. So there could be no question of this just being independent behavior further down the management chain. Directly calling out President Xi is bold. In fact, the tribunal's full judgment is bold. But the next steps are more vague. It's quite important to realize that the tribunal is not an activist organization at all. If people's tribunals become activists, they muddle up their functions. Our function is like a jury in a trial to answer a question and then leave it to others to do what must be done. And the others he's referring to don't necessarily mean governments. The really important thing to have in mind is people have duties to each other, some more obvious than others, so universities and travel companies and businesses that interact with countries that may be doing bad things have a duty to consider that before they travel there, send pupils there, accept money from that country for their universities and so on and so forth. That thought about personal responsibility was also how Sir Jeffrey and the tribunal ended their 60-page judgment. We, the public, more than political leaders and international bodies, know that wherever and whenever gross human suffering occurs, action must follow from the needless suffering of fellow citizens anywhere in the world. It can never be right to look away. Mahrid, final question. Your parents were born in Xinjiang, immigrated to Australia. What does being Uyghur mean to you? And what do you want the world to know about what being Uyghur means right now? I think to me, what it means like right now is to speak out and and to be a voice for my husband and for people like my husband because obviously they've been silenced. They don't have a voice. They don't have anyone to speak out on behalf of them. So um, I am so lucky. I'm so privileged to have been born and raised here because I keep thinking if my parents hadn't made that move, you know, 35 years ago to Australia, we probably would have been caught up in in the same situation. Like my dad probably would have been in a camp as well. Like I I probably could have been in one too. So um, I feel like, you know, we need to um, speak out about it. We need to spread awareness. And as, as an Uyghur living in the diaspora, we need to speak out for our people and let the world know what is going on. And that's The Take. The People's Tribunal's verdict and all the witness statements can be read in their entirety on the group's webpage. We'll post the link on Twitter. We're at AJ The Take. 
This episode was originally produced by Priyanka Tilve, with me, Malika Bilal, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Nay Alvarez, Nagin Oliay, and Dina Gispe. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is the Take Story editor, and Stacey Samuel is executive producer. Special thanks to Sophie Richardson from the Human Rights Watch for her help with research for this story. We'll be back.